0: Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Andrea.
0: And this is a podcast where I trick my mom into reading comics. And also other things, but this week it's comics, because this week we're returning to The Sandman to read Volume 2, The Doll's House, written by Neil Gaiman, with art mostly by Michael Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III. There's one issue in this that is drawn by Michael Zuli, I think is his name. Something Zuli. I think you're right. Oh, I think oh, there might also be. I think there is also an issue drawn by Chris Bocciolo.
1: The volume, this collected volume, the one that we're reading was published in 1990 and it has an introduction by Clive Barker.
0: Yeah. There's also a bunch of other artists doing art in the introduction. It does like a sort of collagey kind of aesthetic. Did you read the introduction? I did. I did not. Do you want to fill me in on what it's like?
1: Well, he sort of just talks about um, Neil Gaiman and his connection to the horror scene It's kind of more like a, just a sort of small essay and not really connected to the story. I think the best part of the introduction is the recap that Neil Gaiman himself writes about the first volume, which is written in the voice of Destiny, the one of the endless, the one with the book. And he sort of recaps the story of what happened in the first a- along with adding some additional components and elements that I think Neil Gaiman didn't get a chance to put into the first volume
0: yeah, that's interesting. We really haven't seen all that much of Destiny yet. I think he's been in one panel and we've seen his, we see a symbol in this, and he might be referenced once or twice, but of the only there's two endless that we ha- by the end of this volume we haven't seen it at all or delirium and destruction. but destiny's been pretty pretty absent.
1: Yeah, I think this second volume really focuses a lot on desire, which is pretty evident when you start reading the issues. And there is some mention of destiny and then who is the death is in one of the issues. And I think is there who else is despair
0: shows up in the beginning when desire is coming up with their plan. They call despair and they talk and that's really all we see of despair.
1: Well, let's get to it. Let's start talking about this uh, jam-packed collection.
0: Yeah. I don't know if this is important, but the first time I read this, I read actually read an older printing of The Doll's House, which originally had The Sound of Her Wings as the first issue. And then later on, they swish it up so that The Sound of the, Her Wings is the last issue in Preludes and Nocturnes.
1: Do you think thematically it makes sense to put it back in the first volume?
0: I think it makes more sense to have it there because it's kind of... It's Dream sort of processing all the stuff he had gone through in that volume and making a decision. I, I think, like, this this reads better with uh, this first issue. Uh, what is it called? Tales in the Sand being the first one because otherwise we get two issues of like prologue that don't really have anything to do with the Doll's House story before the Doll's House story actually starts.
1: Yeah, I think it makes sense to put it back in the first volume because first of all it kind of speaks to the arc of the first volume but then this, the Doll's House, becomes solely the collected story of the Doll's House which is pretty much the story of Rose and her grandmother Unity and her mother and their connection to dream and the dreaming world
0: yeah and this also it's kind of the story of a struggle between dream and desire tales of the sand is the same sort of thing but sound of her wings doesn't really have anything to do with that or with desire
1: i think this collection also clearly shows the Endless and their either desire to meddle in the human world or the desire to stay out of meddling in the human world. It's pretty clear what Dream feels that the role of the Endless is and what his sisters, Dream and Desire, think that their role with the humans is. Well, and yeah,
0: by the end of this story, Dream pretty f- like directly lays out his philosophy on that to desire in no uncertain terms.
1: I also think this uh, this collection and all of these issues have some of the greatest imagery of Morpheus in it in the entire series. I mean, he wears some fantastic outfits in, in this collection.
0: Well, yeah, okay, so well, let's get into it. So the first story in this, the first issue is issue nine, Tales in the Sand, which is interesting because... I think this is, well, except for Sound of Her Wings, this is the first issue that's not a horror story, like at all. This is a, a fable and a myth.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of clever to tell a backstory in the construct of being a myth or an oral story. It's two tribesmen who go into the desert and the older tribesmen, the, the younger tribesmen is going through this. Uh, coming of age and he tells them this story
0: yeah it kind of lays out in the ve- beginning through the narration a lot of the ideas that Gaiman will continue to explore in sandman and will explore in all this other stuff about like stories and the purpose of telling stories and the different purposes behind different kinds of stories and how the context of where and when and who tells a story is important because this is a story told by a man to another man as part of a rite of passage, but it acknowledges that this same story or a similar story is told in a different context with a different meaning between the women, and we don't get to see that. We can only sort of guess at what that version of the story might be like.
1: I think it's also, it's kind of common in Neil Gaiman's writing and his and in his comics, this idea that there's a woman's culture, like a secret, not even secret or just just kind of different from the experience of men and women combined. I mean, we have like the kindly ones and we have, there's always women doing something different. And I think that sort of implied that there's something that men don't understand or there's a myth that could be different from what we would tell a, a young boy coming of age and what a woman would tell another woman.
0: Yeah, I think he definitely kind of buys into this very '80s and '90s new age, like Wicca, sort of mis- divine feminine thing. Luckily, he's not; he doesn't follow through to where a lot of people who are into that go and get kind of turfy about it. We see lots of characters who,
1: I mean, he tap does. into that
0: who are you know not, you know cis women
1: he i mean he definitely writes male and female characters that are equally strong and independent and he's not the kind of writer that always falls for this damsel or um, man in distress that needs to be rescued i mean a lot of his princesses especially in the sleeping beauty story that he writes they're sort of self-rescuing
0: yeah well actually i mean to talk about on on broader terms that was like Weirdly, kind of one of my problems rereading this was just how little agency it feels like Rose has.
1: Yeah, but it, I mean, it kind of, well, we'll get into it. She kind of does stand up for herself. One of the things I want to talk quickly about in Tales of the Sand is the imagery of that crystal heart. Sure. That the tribesmen find and they talk about, you know, don't, you can't take this home with you, throw it back. And then it's, the sigil of one of the endless. But then also it comes back later on in the storytelling with Rose when that symbol comes up again in her story.
0: Yeah, it's the symbol of desire. Um let's talk about the actual events of Tales of
1: what is that I keep saying Tales in the Sand.
0: Tales in the Sand. I keep wanting to say Tales of Sand, which is not the title at all. So it's this myth about a woman from this sort of This city that exists in, like, a mythological, prehistory, dream time kind of zone. She's the queen named Nada. She's the queen of this city, and there's no man that she loves. And she spies this mysterious, handsome, otherworldly figure in the streets below her, like, castle. And she falls in love with him, and she hunts him down, and it turns out it's a dream. It's Morpheus, or as he's called in their culture, Kaiku? And she's in love with him and she confesses her love to him, but also she's afraid because she realizes that he's one of the endless and mortals can't love the endless and bad things happen if they do. And he professes his love for her and pursues her, you know, relentlessly, even though she keeps, you know, it's a little creepy, but also it's like clear that her problem isn't necessarily that she doesn't like dream or accept his advances is that she's afraid of the kind of nebulous consequences and eventually she relents and they make love her city is destroyed by fire from the heavens and then she rejects him and he tells her if she rejects him again she'll be forced she'll be punished she'll be forced to suffer and she does reject him again and as we see in the first volume she's been in hell since then
1: right i think it's also interesting too because in this story in the depiction and I don't know if it's a conscious effort from the illustrator because it's being told to another person but this depiction of Morpheus he doesn't have his sort of endless kind of persona he looks just like a regular tribesman he doesn't have his black hair or or his pale skin and even when he's talking he doesn't talk in his bubbles which are black and white
0: wait does he not talk in the, the black i thought he did because he, he has like reversed color speech bubbles where or they have like a black background and white
1: well in a lot of the story he doesn't actually talk
0: yeah well because it's a narrator but i think there's right. a couple times where we see his speech and he does talk in the old
1: okay yeah yes so
0: i think it's interesting in the way they draw him physically in this is they latch on to the idea that's brought up when he meets martian manhunter in the first volume where he looks different to people depending on their cultural context for him. So, because these are tribesmen and uh, you know members of a seemingly fictional tribe in Africa, they perceive Dream as being black. And so, the normal way—not the normal way, but the the most common way—they depict Dream as being otherworldly in the series is that he has bone-white skin. Right. But so, because they don't want to do that for this. They do, the artist, uh, Dringenberg, does some interesting stuff where his face is like constantly swimming in shadow and his like eyes are just kind of these like black pools. And when we, the closest we get to seeing his eyes are seeing like stars shining out of them. So it's an interesting like twist on the visual language to still portray him as this like otherworldly and impossible figure without just going back to the standard way of drawing him. With the chalk white skin and the the black hair.
1: I think Nadia is one of the first characters... We see in the first collection that Morpheus gets angry and he wants revenge. And then he tempers himself. Mm-hmm. But I think because Nadia predates that first volume, his wrath is severe. He sends her directly to hell. He does not temper himself. And I think that's one of the things... And it's sort of nodded to in the first collection, he may feel guilty about such an extreme punishment for the rejection that she gives him.
0: Yeah. This is like our first glimpse of Dream before his imprisonment. So he hasn't experienced any of the humbling, humanizing stuff that we see in the first volume. So he's much portrayed much more as like a a god-like figure in like the sense of like a like a god in a pantheon and also like the literal not the literal but like the biblical vengeful old testament style god
1: Yeah it's interesting. I mean I don't I understand what the purpose of this prologue is but it is sort of an interesting narrative on a way to tell this story about Nadia and to sort of link it into the, you know, the heart motif and then sort of tell the story of Morpheus and how he at some point either successfully or unsuccessfully interacts with humans.
0: Yeah, well, I think it shows that, like, before he goes through all the stuff in the first one, his interactions with humans are, uh, you know, a lot less gentle than they become. And I think this also helps explain why he says the things he does to Desire at the end of the story about how, you know, we aren't supposed to meddle with the humans. If anything, they meddle with us. I think he this story is what teaches him that.
1: I think it also sets up the fact that, I mean, you see Morpheus and you see Death and you see their relationship and they have like an amical relationship. And then with this story, the precedence is set is that Morpheus and his sister... At this point, who is identifying as female in this construct, they have a more um, abrasive relationship. They don't get along as well as he does with his other sister.
0: Yeah, yeah. there's definitely a a huge difference between uh, his relationship with Death and his relationship with Desire. I don't know if it's talked about in this volume, but Desire is supposed to be the younger sister. So Death is older than Dream. But Desire is younger. And so I feel like that kind of explains a little bit of their relationship.
1: Well, she definitely seems more mischievous. And she's sort of more... She obviously is more concerned with the goings and the kind of... um, The things that humans are doing. She seems more curious about the human world. Morpheus seems kind of distant from the human world i don't know if it's because he's had experiences with it and he didn't like it but desire seems to i mean her whole purpose is to get in there and meddle with how humans live their lives and it's clearly shown in these stories that it's good or bad or whatever but i
0: think that comes back to like their nature because the the most sort of like mature and like reasonable i think of the endless are death, destiny, and destruction, who are all ones that can and do exist independently from humanity. Humans don't need to be around for death, destiny, and destruction to happen. Or, I mean, when I say humans, obviously in this, like, fantastical world, I just mean, like, sentient beings. Right. Because there are also, like, Martians and stuff. But, like, dream, desire, despair, and delirium all require living thinking creatures but then you see the difference between desire and dream is like dream relies on the existence of sentient beings but they come to him they come to his realm every night desire has to move like desire is a force that makes men move like it's a motivation so of course desire is going to end up being a little bit you know more petty and more active than the other ones because that's what desire is
1: right so most of this collection deals with rose walker and her and her family so do you want to talk a little bit about what the overarching theme of this collection is
0: sure um okay so the main most of the well yeah the entire rest of this volume is taken up by a story called the doll's house And so the idea is that in the first volume when Dream is captured and we see the effect that his imprisonment has on the world, one of the people who is affected is this woman or this girl named Unity Kincaid who falls into a deep sleep that she very rarely awakens from. And we also find in that volume that at some point someone raped her. So last time when I was like, when we were talking about 24 Hours and I was like trigger warnings all over this thing. Trigger warnings all over this as well. There's a lot of uh, abuse and violence. That's one of the major themes of this collection. And so we find out that she was, she was raped and she had a child while she was sleeping. And in this, we find out that this child was adopted and she became this woman named Miranda, who then in turn had two children of her own, a girl named Rose who's the elder daughter, and a boy named Jed, who is the younger son. And so most of this centers around Rose, who in the first part of the story is called with her mother to London to meet her uh, grandmother, and then is sent to Florida to try and find Jed, who's been missing because he was taken by Rose's father when their family split up. And Jed is a pre-existing character from DC Comics. Jed is the young boy sidekick type character to the Sandman superhero character, as we see later on in the story.
1: So we also find out that Rose is a vortex.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the other driving plot element of this is, like in the first volume where uh, Dream finds his regalia missing and he's looking for them... In this, we find out that several of the important dreams and nightmares, four of the major arcana as they're identified, are missing. And they're Brute and Glob, who are also pre-existing characters from Sandman, the superhero Sandman. And then also something called Fiddler's Green and someone called the Corinthian.
1: Which is almost like a Flannery O'Connor, a good man is hard to find. There's a murderer on the road. yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: And so, Rose goes to Florida. She stays at this uh, boarding house full of all of these interesting characters. And she's looking for her brother. And we find out that her brother is being abused. He's locked in a basement by an abusive couple who adopted them after their father died. And then their grandfather took him in and the grandfather died. And then he ended up with their... Like distant aunt and uncle who are abusive, and in his dreams, he escapes to the dream world and goes on adventures with Sandman. And those adventures are presented as like a visual parody of the Little Nemo in Dreamland comic strips. And then also there is a serial killer convention going on. Yes. And Rose befriends this dude who's definitely not just G.K. Chesterton, named Gilbert, who <laughs> lives in the boarding house and. The Corinthian is heading to the area before the serial killer convention because he is this like evil nightmare that Morpheus created to reflect the darkness in humanity, and he's a serial killer with mouths for eyes.
1: Well, let's get back to the vortex. We have that's an important plot point that people need to understand. Uh, sure, is... do you understand it? <laughs> well, here's what I, I kind of don't
0: get it. Here's
1: what I think a vortex is. And I think it's clearly explained in one of the panels, it's clearly explained. So the vortex is a human that has the ability to interfere in people's dreams and also affect the world of dreaming, which is Morpheus's domain. And so Rose, in, in one of the episode issues... Rose is dreaming, and all of the people who live in the house are also dreaming, and Rose's dreaming is affecting their dreams, and they're crossing over, or there's a soft barriers between all of the people's dreams. And the panel that I'm talking about is... It's a full page and it's a picture of the house Mm -hmm. and within the house is the shape of the different panels that depict each of the people who are living in the house and their dreams.
0: Yeah. So apparently a vortex comes along every so often. Yeah.
1: One generation or error. It's very ambiguous about how often it happens, but it's a very rare event. The vortex is always a human. Mm -hmm.
0: Is it? Because it seems like a bunch of characters are surprised that the Vortex is a human this time. Or maybe they just don't know what a Vortex is, so when someone calls it a Vortex and then calls it a person, they're confused.
1: I think that the last time the Vortex came, it destroyed the world of dreaming. So every creature in the world of dreams is there after the Vortex. Or don't remember the Vortex.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you say it's a human, I think it's just a sentient being. Because Dream says that the last time it happened... like a world and a civilization was lost. And I believe that the recent Sandman Overture story is actually a telling of those events.
1: Right. And I think what happens is that despair and death team up to mess around with Morpheus. And one of the ways that they start to mess with him is they, they alert him to the fact that Rose exists and that she's a vortex. Yeah. And then that sort of spurs morpheus to get involved in this story of rose
0: well his plan is that because she's a vortex she will draw the major the missing pieces of the major arcana to her so he can just kind of sit back and let things play out as they will right so
1: so rose and her mother go to england they meet unity yes and then also at this time rose meets the kindly ones
0: well, she meets the Hecate from the first issue who tell her that sometimes they're the kindly ones and she wouldn't want to meet them when they are such. Right. And they give another prophecy to her. I forget what they actually say to her. They tell her to beware the Corinthian.
1: Right. I also like that when Rose is meeting with Unity, there she has, Unity has her dollhouse. And in the dollhouse, you see a little tiny Morpheus peeping out. Is what that is
0: supposed it? to be Morpheus, or is it supposed to be Desire?
1: I, I thought it was... I looked at it really closely, and I thought it was Morpheus.
0: It's definitely one of the endless, because it's a pale person with right. black hair.
1: Right. and it, and I mean, Oh, it's, yeah. It, it's
0: Morpheus. You just zoomed in on it. That's definitely Morpheus. Because Desire wears, like, red most of the time. Yeah.
1: And there's you can see one of the panels. You can see it's very clearly... Morpheus as Sid Vicious yeah. depicted in peeping into the doll. His house.
0: hair is much more poofy in this volume now that Sam Keith isn't drawing him so much. <laughs> so
1: So then that kind of so that sets the premise and then it goes right into the next issue, which is called Moving In, where you meet the characters that live in the boarding house that Rose moves into while she's looking for Jed in Florida.
0: Do you want to go through them?
1: So there's Hale.
0: Who's a drag queen. Who's
1: a drag queen. And he
0: owns the house. Right. uh, And he's super nice.
1: And then there's Barbara and Ken, who are Barbie and Ken, who are supposedly the perfect couple.
0: They're soulless yuppies uh, in the same style as the soulless yuppies in the diner. And And they speak and they like finish each other's sentences constantly. Right.
1: And then there's. Zelda and Chantel, which are the spider women, and they're sort of depicted as wearing Victorian-era clothes with veils, and they're kind of um, very gothic. They collect spiders. They're they're kind of ambiguous about what you know what they're really about, but they're two women in a committed relationship.
0: Yeah, they call each other sisters, but they sleep together in the nude, and they're clearly not probably not related. It's it, Yeah, it's deliberately ambiguous as to what their relationship actually is.
1: And then you have the weirdo who lives in the attic, which... Is Gilbert. Which is Gilbert, but they don't really... No one's really interacted with Gilbert, only heard or spoke to him th- in the, through the walls or in the hallway, so...
0: Yeah, we, we find out that he, he stomps around a lot, and he has a booming voice. And that's all we know about him initially. It's just his name... And the fact that he's very loud and secretive. And then, is it in this issue that Rose goes to Hal's shell?
1: Yes, because that's how she meets Gilbert. She goes to the show and she's walking back. And she gets harassed by these street urchins. And Gilbert, who's supposed to be a heroic character, comes to her rescue.
0: Yeah, he's a large uh overweight man with a mustache dressed in a green suit and a hat who beats up these men Oh, he, he wears like knees uh and he beats up these men with a like a his a cane, cane. Right. he's like an old older gentleman he's he is clearly like his name and his personality and his appearance are all based on the writer G.K. Chesterton
1: right and he's kind of in my mind a mashup of G.K. Chesterton and uh ignatius from confederacy of dunces
0: uh i think that that has more to do with the fact that ignatius from confederacy of dunces is like gk Chesterton.
1: yeah i definitely think that i mean it's kind of like he has this um heroic kind of vibe but he also sort of has this napoleon of Notting hill where he's kind of a little bit out of touch with like how like People in modern society act. He has a very old fashioned, flamboyant, like flourishy way of speaking. He has a sort of dramatic outfit, the pinched knees, the cane, the curly orangish hair. I mean, he's kind of like an exaggeration of like.
0: Yeah, he's a, uh, you could say that he's a quixotic figure. He's, he's like into chivalry and he calls himself a knight and his. As we find out later, his cane is also a sword.
1: I think it's interesting, too, because he is the only missing dream creature who's not evil or violent or looking to, like, wreak havoc in the modern world.
0: Yeah, we also don't find out he's a dream until later. Right. But, yeah, he he saves her. Okay, I'll just say this right now. There's a couple things that I don't really like about this story. I like this story a lot, but... I don't like the continued usage of the threat of sexual violence against Rose, and in general. And also, I have, like, I have complicated feelings about the portrayal of Desire. We can talk about that later, I guess. I
1: think the part of this, the whole thing with this depiction of sexual violence, it sort of sets the tone that it's, it's, it's like, this is about predators. Yeah, all different kinds of predators. I mean, you see that very clearly when you get to the serial killer convention. And I think that one way that modern society sees predators, well, there's two ways that modern society sees predators. There's sexual predators who attack women, and there's people who prey on children. And I think these are two different kinds of predators. We see that Jed is being, um, he's being held captive, and he's being uh, physically abused, and then we see Rose who is always in this threat of this sexual predator and in fact she even at one point even gets uh, you know captured by a sexual predator yeah
0: no I, I understand that this is a story about predators and abuse and that's fine it's just like they do it twice i, I don't know
1: yeah and i think it's like the i mean and she it, has to
0: be saved by a dude both times she's saved by Gilbert the first time and then the second time she's saved by Morpheus
1: but i think it's also Note it. You should note that it, was, it takes place in the 1990s, which is right after, right? You know, it's still kind of the 80s aesthetic. And in the 80s, there was this huge news trend about, you know, you know these predatory cults, and about missing children, and you know serial killers come into prevalence. And there's this a lot of like talk in the media about these sexual predators who prey on prostitutes, and there's this whole thing about these sort of satanic cults which is sort of, um, you know, brings to light this whole thing about um, missing children and, you know, the threat for, you know, of children in society that people may not have been aware of. And I think this sort of takes those elements and puts them in there.
0: I think, okay, I, I totally get that, and I understand the context that it's coming from. I think the thi- the The reason that I'm reacting to this the way that I am, I mean, it's partially because, you know, this is over 20 years out from it and our, you know, our understanding of these tropes have changed. But it's also like, I've read a ton of comics and this kind of thing becomes a real problem in comics over the next like 20 years out from this story. This isn't the, the origin point of it. I think that's probably Watchmen. But, like, the idea of, like, oh, the way to have a character be a threat to a female protagonist is to use sexual violence becomes hugely prevalent and in a lot of really terrible comics. So anytime I see it in a comic, it sort of puts me on edge because, like, you know, I've read Identity Crisis.
1: Well, I I understand what you're saying and all of it is valid. But what I'm saying is... Not that it has to be taken with a grain of salt or dismissed, but at this time is when people started talking more about the exploitive nature of humans, which we didn't really talk about before that. I mean, there was a whole...
0: I mean, at least not in popular culture.
1: Yeah, at least not in popular culture. And I i mean, so I don't, I'm not justifying the... Oh, it doesn't
0: like ruin the book for me. I'm just saying like, that's a thing that happens. It's not super cool, <laughs> but we can move on.
1: But let's talk a little bit about um, our first introduction to Matthew the Raven. And I know that he has a connection to Swamp Thing.
0: Yeah, I don't know it, when that's established. But what we learned about Matthew the Raven in this is that he, is a, he was a man who died. And he wasn't a great dude, at least not at the end of his life.
1: Does he die and, in the dream world? Is that what happens to well, him? Well, so
0: he's supposed to be... Or at least he is revealed to be at some point Matthew Cable, I think his name is, Right. who is a supporting character from Swamp Thing. He's one of the oldest supporting characters in Swamp Thing. He's been around pretty much since the beginning, and I believe he is asleep when he dies.
1: Okay, in... so he ends up in the dream world.
0: Yeah, he he is um, he dies in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run, and I believe he's asleep when he dies and. By the end of his life, he's like made a deal with a demon and done a bunch of really crummy things. And crummy is maybe understanding it. He, he becomes like kind of a villain by the end. He also an alcoholic. Uh so yeah, that's interesting. I think like
1: so he Matthew acts as Morpheus's agent in the in the in the living world, and yeah. he interacts with the people and he gathers information. And he helps Morpheus. I don't know why Morpheus can't just see the things that are happening, but for some reason he needs a picture of Jed and he...
0: Well, I think the idea is Morpheus could do this stuff on his own. We've seen Morpheus walk around in the dream, in the real world, but he's working on rebuilding the dreaming and stuff. So he needs Matthew to go do this for him because he can't do both at the same time. He he can only exist, I think, in one world at a given moment. Because it's pretty clear that there's not really anything except... The only thing that seems to really prevent dreams from crossing over into the real world, if they're powerful enough to do it, is Morpheus himself.
1: Right. So that's what happens when, when Morpheus is away. These characters, these dream creatures, break free and go into the living world. So then after issue 11 moving in, we go into issue 12, which is called Playing House... And then this starts to tell the story of Jed and his experience and interaction with Brute and Glob. So I know this sort of has a nod to sort of the older character, the original
0: Sandman. Okay, so do you want me to... There's so much... This is like... I think this reads fine without too much context. Like we learn in this... If you've never read anything, any other DC Comics beforehand, and you read this, you learn in this that there was a previous Sandman, superhero Sandman. He was succeeded by this dead guy named Hector Hall. And the Sandman adventures around in the dream world, and he's got these two nightmares that work with and for him named Brute and Glob, And he has adventures with this kid named Jed. And what this does is, I think this is actually... If you remember in the first episode, we talked about how originally this series was pitched as a revival of that Jack Kirby Sandman comic, and then Karen Berger told Neil Gaiman to do it with an original character. So I think this is sort of our glimpse into what Sandman could have been, because this is a very Vertigo Comics-type twist of recontextualizing this older character and their stories, in the same way that, like, the anatomy lesson issue of Swamp Thing reveals that like oh you thought you were reading about Alec Holland the whole time actually you were reading about a big old vegetable that accidentally ate Alec Holland's memories this is like the same sort of thing where it's like oh you thought you were reading about a superhero in the dreamland actually he was being manipulated by these two nightmares the whole time and he was just kind of a delusional puppet and so we find out as Brute and Glob are trying to when Dream goes missing they decide they're going to try and make a new dream king that they'll control so they'll be powerful. And their first attempt results in the original Sandman, the original Jack Kirby Sandman, Garrett Sandford, But he loses it and apparently kills himself. And then they snatch up the soul of the dying Hector Hall and make him into the new Sandman. And they're using Jed. They're, they're, their fake dreaming exists entirely within Jed's head. And they've essentially created this scenario where they're imprisoning Hector Hall and his wife Lita, and then they've manipulated the aunt and uncle into imprisoning Jed to serve as this like testing ground for their new dreamland that they control
1: okay so jed in the- in the real world is being held captive in a, by his aunt and uncle in this sort of foster care situation where they're getting money to care for him and they're just locking him in the basement. And then in the dream world that Brut and Glob have created that has Hector and Lita in it, Jed is having adventures with the original Jack Kirby Stangman. Is that what's happening?
0: Sort of, yes. (laughs) Do you want me to explain Hector and Lita Hall?
1: Well, I think there... I mean, other than this issue, there's no other mention of Hector Hall.
0: Another mention of Hector Hall, Lita Hall becomes very important.
1: Yes, yes. And in the dream world, she's pregnant. Yeah, And that's where the kind of, that's, this dream world has been going on in the dream world for years. And then Lita starts to kind of get a little bit self-aware and starts to question why things aren't happening in the dream world. Why is she pregnant for such a long time? Why is her husband obsessed with being the Sandman? You know, what is going on?
0: Okay, here, I'll, I will explain it. So, before Crisis on Infinite Earths, which we've talked about before, because, like, the the big story where hell uh, gets shaken up in the first volume, like, that happens during Crisis on Infinite Earths. Before that, DC had this thing where their older characters from the Golden Age and, like, World War II existed on a separate Earth called Earth Two. And then the modern characters, starting with, like, the Barry Allen flash of the Silver Age, existed on Earth-1. And at some point in the 80s, this guy, Roy Thomas, who used to be, like, the editor-in-chief of Marvel, he's kind of Stan Lee's main apprentice, he came over to work for DC, and he's obsessed with Golden Age characters. So he started writing two books for DC that took place on Earth-2. And one was All-Star Squadron, which was, like, just set during World War II, and was new stories using those characters in the time period that they're from. But the other one, and the one that's important for this, was a book called Infinity, Inc., which was about the next generation of those characters starting their own team. And one of two of those characters were the Fury and the Silver Scarab. And the Silver Scarab is Hector Hall. He's the son of Hawkman and Hawkwoman. And the deal with Hawkman and Hawkwoman is that they're or Hawk girl. I guess she she's not Hawk woman yet, but whatever. Mm-hmm. The deal with them is that they're constantly being reincarnated and they have an... Their enemy is Hathset, who's an evil priest who also gets reincarnated. And he basically puts a curse on them that if they have kids, their kid will be born without a soul and he will become the vessel for this evil force called the Silver Scarab. And that's what happens with Hector All He tries to be a superhero and he gets possessed by evil ancient force. But before that he gets possessed, he falls in love with the Fury, who is Hippolyta Trevor, who originally, before Crisis on Infinite Earths happened, was the daughter of Wonder Woman. And then Crisis on Infinite Earths happened, and Wonder Woman is taken out. Like, they, they were like, oh no, Wonder Woman co- shows up now, so she couldn't have been in World War II. So they retconned in a new character called the Fury. And that's what, in this issue when, uh, not in this issue, in this volume when Lita's like, why did I become a bad copy of my mother? That's who she's talking about. And they have a kid. That She becomes pregnant, and the kid becomes, like, the vessel for Hector's goodness, and that defeats the Silver Scarab. And Hector dies, but his soul gets taken into the dream world, and he becomes the new Sandman. And in Infinity, Inc., that's presented as, like, a happy ending. That, like, Hector was constantly jealous of, like, this other character called Northwind, and he didn't have a soul, and he was struggling to live up to his father, and he dies in this really tragic way, and he's given a chance... To be a hero again in this dream world as the Sandman. And he brings his wife to come live with him in the dream world. And then that is recontextualized in this as being this sort of tragic, weird thing where they get manipulated by Bruton Glob.
1: I like how at one point Morpheus kind of gets disgusted with the whole situation. And he says, this has been amusing, little ghost. And that was not something I expected. But every playtime must come to an end this dream is over and then he decides that he has to start interacting with brute and glob and sort of set this whole thing to rights.
0: Yeah. So when Matthew brings a picture of Jed to dream to Morpheus, he finds out about brute and glob's plan and he goes to directly intervene and he ends up destroying their fake dreamland, banishing brute and glob into the darkness and sending Hector off to actually be dead for real this time. Except he's not, because he definitely comes back later and gets to be Dr. Fate. And also, he's reborn as a baby and instantly ages up into being an old man. But it's not, fucking wild.
1: But this doesn't happen in No, no, no,
0: no, no, it doesn't. I'm just like...
1: Okay, so then in Sandman... He's just dead. He's dead. And then Morpheus has an interaction with Lita
0: mm-hmm.
1: And then that becomes a huge plot point in the future issues... Because he tells her that the child that she's going to give birth to is actually his child.
0: Well, he's laid claim to him. He says, I'll come back and I'll get that kid eventually. And oh. she's
1: kind of like, "Over oh, my dead body. But. Well,
0: yeah, she, from her perspective, Morpheus is a monster that showed up and destroyed her home life, however weird it might have been. Killed her husband and then is now like, hey, I'm definitely going to kidnap your unborn child. Get ready. But I, So I have two questions about this. Um, one is he's very mean to Hector Hall. He calls him little ghost and treats him like a joke. And Hector Hall is a completely ridiculous character in this. Like a parody of a superhero. And he's constantly talking about like, oh, is this going to be tougher than why I fought the skeleton men of Pluto? Do you think that this is because Neil Gaiman is mad that he didn't get to use this character and Roy Thomas took him and told this silly story in Infinity Inc. with him?
1: I don't know, because I don't know that much about comics. I kind of felt like it was almost like he was dismissing the old Sandman and just making way for the new well, Sandman. Well, we know that
0: originally he wanted to use the new Sandman. I My theory is that he wanted to use the new Sandman. Roy Thomas got a hold of him and turned him into, made Hector Hall the new Sandman. And now this is Neil Gaiman kind of poking fun at that because he didn't get to tell the story he originally wanted to tell.
1: That's That could be true. I also think that it's sort of a rejection of the traditional superhero comic that now neil gaiman is writing
0: yeah so and so the other question is i don't want to spoil anything obviously but do we've seen dream be way more gentle and human than he is in this issue when he's interacting with hector and leda hall he treats them very roughly he doesn't give her like a chance to say goodbye to her husband he doesn't really explain the situation she sees him deliver this very cruel but not necessarily undeserving punishment onto Bruton Glob when we've seen him be merciful before and afterwards. Do you think he is intentionally acting like this to make her hate him to set up the things she will do later in the series that will lead to the ending?
1: I think so. And I also think that at this point he's, he's becoming aware that the situation that he is is in is created by his siblings. In the first collection, the the things that happened to him were not directly manipulations. I think the things that death and desire are doing in the live in the waking world are affecting the dreaming world, and by proxy, affecting Morpheus. Mm-hmm. So, so now he has he has returned and Glob back to the dream world and Jeb escapes his captors and he runs out and he immediately gets picked up by the Corinthian who is on his way to a convention of serial killers. Serial killers. Yes. And this is sort of where things really go off the rails. So Jeb is captured by the Corinthian and Rose... Finds out where Jeb is, finds out about the aunt and uncle, and she decides, just a poor decision, to buy a broken down used car to drive to get to rescue her brother. And Gilbert decides that he's going along with her.
0: Yeah, he's like, it's no place out in the world for a young woman. I mean, he's not wrong because we did see her get attacked earlier. And he's like, I brought my sword cane. I'll come with you. And they pile into the car together, and the car breaks down, and they're forced to stay at this motel, which just happens to be the motel where the serial convention is happening. And then she gets the call from the police, who stumble upon the aftermath of Morpheus intervening in in Bruton Glob's machinations, which results in the death of the aunt and uncle, and she's told she has to stay put for a little while. So her and Gilbert end up stranded in the middle of what they d- think is a convention for fans or growers of cereal, but is actually a convention for serial killers where the Corinthian is headed with her brother in the trunk of his car. Right.
1: But all of that is, comes to a grinding halt because right when you think you're getting to the part where you're going to meet the serial killers, there's an interlude. And it starts sort of a separate side story.
0: Well, it's basically just a whole issue. Just like not really... It's not really connected except maybe thematically to the rest of the Doll's House story. It's not... I wouldn't even say it's part of the, the Doll's House story. Like you said, it's an interlude. It's called Men of Good Fortune. And it's maybe my favorite issue in the whole series?
1: Well, I labeled my notes Dream and Death walk into a bar. Dot dot dot.
0: Yeah. So it starts what do you when does it when it, what century does it actually start in? It
1: starts, I think, in thirteen eighty nine.
0: Yeah, it starts in thirteen eighty nine because it, it ends in nineteen eighty
1: nine. Right, exactly.
0: So it starts in thirteen eighty nine. Death and Dream walk into a bar. They walk into like a tavern or a pub. A pub, yeah. And it's basically they Death meet... attempting the first version of what she would later actually succeed at in *The Sound of Her Wings*, which is trying to get Morpheus to connect with humanity.
1: So they meet Hob Gadling.
0: Yeah, so there's He's... this dude in the bar. They go in the bar and there's a bunch of people talking, and you overhear a bunch of snippets of conversation. I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt you. And talk no, go ahead. Um, and Dream is like, "This sucks. I hate people. I want to go home." And that's like, no, you gotta, I always meet with the people, you should meet with the people. And there's this dude, just kind of like holding court in one section of the bar, and he's talking about how he was in this war, he was in the war, uh, at Burgundy, I think, and all these people died, and everybody's dying of the plague, and he's like, dying is a mugs game, that's what he says specifically. People only die because they think they have to, and you're a sucker if you decide to die, so I'm not going to die. And this intrigues Dream, and Death is like, okay, you know, if you're going to stay here and talk to this guy, I'm going to peace out. And she leaves, and Dream and this guy, who turns out to be named Hobgadling, have, like, a short conversation where they basically agree to meet in this bar in 100 years. And then it immediately cuts to 100 years later, and it's the same bar, and Hobgadling is still alive— and he meets up with Dream, and he's like, yeah, living rocks. I'm going to keep living. Uh, I got no desire to die. And we just get, like, we jump forward 100 years at a time to each of their meetings to see how life in the world has changed. We see, you know, Hob gets everything he wants at one point. He has, like, money and a wife and a kid, and then they all die. And he becomes destitute and bitter, but he still doesn't want to die. And then at one point, he becomes rich from the slave trade, which, and Morpheus is like, uh, that's really bad. Don't do, don't do that. Don't sell slaves. And then the next time they meet up, he's like, yeah, you were right about the slave thing. It's really bad. I'm not going to do that. At one point, they get accosted by Joanna Constantine, which implies that the Constantines are like a lineage of shitty people who also know about the occult. And that could because Gabbling references the fact that he had met a Jack Constantine who had been killed by Nightwalkers. I think they're vampires is what he's talking about in a cemetery. I actually think this might be a direct reference to a Garthanis issue of Hellblazer. I'd have to check. But she tells them that they, their meetings have created this myth that every hundred years in this tavern, the wandering Jew and the devil meet and have a conversation
1: Right, and the response is, I'm not Jewish, and I'm not the devil. Yeah. (laughs) But I think it's one i would love. This is the one that I loved, all the different variations of Morpheus, how he changed over the years, and the different costumes that he wore. I thought that was really great. And I also thought it had a lot of political and literary and historical references. You meet a lot of famous characters. Shakespeare is in it at one point. And they talk about um, Marlowe, and they talk about poetry, and there's a lot of historical references, which I think is sort of a, a good way, like a nice overview of the time. But I think the main purpose of this story is for, well, I, there could be two reasons. One, it shows Morpheus that humans are not all bad. And that there's a purpose for interacting with them. But I think it's also for Morpheus to make a friend.
0: Well, yeah. Well, I think the the what this story does is... So... What the... tales in the Sand? She gives us like a portrait of pre-capture Morpheus. And how... And what he's like then. And how sort of inhuman he can be. And this story we see him you know having these relatively pleasant interactions with this guy over time. but the big like the not the big but like I think the crux of this story is this moment in 1889 where Hob Gadling says that he thinks that the reason Morpheus shows up to this every hundred years is because he's lonely and he needs a friend and they're friends. and Morpheus freaks out and he's like I'm one of the endless, I'm super powerful. I don't need a friend who's a human or any friends at all and shut up and I hate you. And Hob is like, if you come, I'm going to be here in a hundred years. And if you're here too, it's because we're friends. And he shows up at the end and he he is like, hey, buddy, we're friends. Let's (laughs) hang out. It's the 80s. And I think that like he, we, it sure, oh man, I totally did a word salad. It shows us how much he's changed over the volumes. This is like an issue that specifically... So we see what Morpheus was like before volume one. And this is a highlight of how much he's changed since then. How much more he's connected with humanity and with himself. And like, he's not so much a lonely sad sack like he was in The Sound of Her Wings. He's got a friend that he wants to hang out with. And he's willing to call his friend.
1: I think also it's, just, I mean, Hob, no matter what happens to him, you know, he gets the pox and his family dies he's still every time Morpheus asks him do you want to live another hundred years he says yes of course I do there's so many things that I haven't done yet he's always sort of optimistic about living and I think that sort of shows that Morpheus that there's sort of maybe like a positive reason to interact with humans
0: yeah it's this this issue becomes very interesting once we get to the end of the series and we've learn about a big choice that Morpheus makes. And I'm not going to get into it, and we can talk about it again when that happens. But yeah, I mean, he's a portrayal of, like, how you can be immortal and be cool with it. He's a lot like death, in a way.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, I, to get back to Lady Constantine, I think she is just as... I mean, maybe it's a lineage of bumbling supernatural detectives, because she's just as clueless. Because there is another person who has almost like immortality that's briefly mentioned in the story she never picks up on it
0: do you know who that is who is it it's our boy etrigan the demon it's jason blood his human vessel that's like a thing that comes up in the jack kirby demon comics is that he does the hobgadling thing where he constantly changes his identity and he'll leave town and come back as his own son that's who they're referencing in that but yeah dc comics are full of immortal characters there's also the phantom stranger who is literally supposed to be the wandering Jew, who I think he shows up later on in Sandman. I could be wrong about that.
1: But I like this story a lot too. And I think it sets this, because it happens in other, in future volumes, there's these sort of interlude stories that are standalone stories that are peripherally connected to the dream world. And they're sort of like, they're tales, they're narratives, they're sort of, Palette cleansers because, I mean, you're reading this story about Morpheus making a friend and then the next issue you're like, okay, let's meet these serial killers and then you're kind of like, oh, this is not a heartwarming story of Morpheus befriending, you know, his lifelong bestie or whatever.
0: Yeah, but those are... the All of those side stories are my favorite parts of the series. I love this. I love this issue so much and I just want to see him hang out with Hobb. I would read... Eight hundred years of them hanging out,
1: but it's almost like the, you know, that like musical episode that happens in a serious series, and you're kind of like, okay, this is interesting and fun, but now we have to get back to like Mm -hmm. this sort of crushing.
0: Yeah, and this also sets up stuff that happens later on in the series. Like you said, they meet Shakespeare, and he is you know young and he's struggling, and his plays aren't very good. And he has a conversation with Dream, the ramifications of which we see later on in an issue that would win a Pulitzer Prize.
1: So let's get into... Oh, no, no,
0: no, wait. I I, I want to ask you about another thing about this issue. Okay. Do, Did Neil Gaiman read Jitterbug Perfume?
1: I don't know, but I like to think that he did.
0: Because this is very similar to... So Jitterbug Perfume would have come out like four or five years before this. And uh, for people who don't know, Jitterbrook Perfume is a novel by Tom Robbins. The guy who wrote uh, Even Cowgirls Get the, Get the Blues. We read it and talked about it in the previous iteration of this podcast. And what Jitterbrook Perfume is about is an ancient uh, king, king who decides he doesn't want to die and then doesn't. For a very long time, at least. And there's a bunch of other stuff in it, and it's really, really good and very funny, and I highly recommend reading it. But... The character of Hobgadling reminds me a lot of the characters in uh, Jitterbroke Perfume. Also, in that, they, the king befriends a mythological figure. In that case, being the god Pan and not Dream of the Endless.
1: Yeah, I didn't make that connection, but there is a lot of similarities to that.
0: But they they both explore this idea of like, yeah, why would you want to die? Just don't die and you won't die. So, yeah.
1: So, are we ready to talk serial killers? So this is technically part five of the dollhouse, and it's called The Collectors. And this issue is bonkers.
0: Can I take a guess? Because I just said, oh, this, the Hobgadling, Men of Good Fortune is my favorite issue of Sandman. Is this your favorite issue of Sandman? It is
1: definitely the most um, late 80s, early 90s punk rock issue of the Sandman that you could even get. And I think it's sort of... Seeing him at the end of the Men of Good Fortune, where he looks a lot like Sid Vicious. Mm-hmm. And then you go right into this kind of like story about these serial killers who are having a convention. And like, in my mind, some kind of, you know, part of abandoned, you know, uninventful part of Americana. And they're at this sort of rundown hotel and they're having this convention it's like
0: central florida i think where they're supposed to be which is like yeah that's where you'd have a serial killer convention if it's not in the northwest which would be or the midwest which would be really on the nose
1: but i mean even you know when you get to the title page And it's all sort of these black and white. It's very sort of zine looking with all of these cutouts of black and white images. And then over it, there's an American flag that's dripping blood. And then you have the collectors that's sort of written in this sort of clash-like font. And you're kind of like, yeah, this is 100% for like Gen X. And even when you see like some of the depictions of the Corinthian, he has this sort of late 80s aesthetic. And it's kind of like...
0: yeah. Um, so the bulk of the action of this issue is just sort of like an exploration of this convention. We see a lot of conversations between the different serial killers. Uh, we see a lot of the minutiae of, like, running the convention. Like, one of the major figures in this is Mr. Nimrod. All the, all the serial killers or collectors are identified by their, like, nom de murder. So Mr. Nimrod is this, like, little mustachioed, like, middle manager right. guy who's running the convention and he we see a lot of him we see a lot of this uh bigger dude named Funland, who like clearly murders people at like a disneyland stand-in um and we see a lot of this guy called the boogeyman who unclear exactly what his deal is except that if you give him a number he can tell you about the woman that corresponds to that number that he murdered and we and we see the corinthian who becomes the guest of honor When the previous guest of honor, the family man, can't make it because he's too old. And so, we get a lot of them talking. We get a lot of them, like, the killers explaining what their deal is. And, like, flashbacks about, like, how and why they kill. And, I mean, the whole thing is a big grotesque joke about the banality of evil.
1: I think what, I mean, as a librarian, I attend a lot of conferences. Mm Mm-hmm. And the sort of this is exactly like a conference. I mean they get they have to register and they have to get their name tags and they sit through these boring panels where they're talking this minutiae. And I guess they didn't have PowerPoint at the time, but they had like slides and and they had like different topics, these sort of kind of esoteric topics that you talk about in the conference. And then there's like the obligatory meet and greet cocktail party. And at one point they even have a disco.
0: Yeah, so that's like the whole time this is happening, Rose is wandering around uh, just kind of bored and waiting for the police to get back to her about her brother. Also, Gilbert sees and recognizes the Corinthian very early on. And so he knows that there's something very wrong happening here because he knows what the Corinthian is. And so he is dealing with that. He gives Rose a piece of paper with a name on it. And he's like, if you get in trouble, say this name out loud, but don't do it beforehand. And he goes off to, like, investigate things or something. And eventually Rose stumbles upon the disco and tries to go in. And she catches the attention of Funland, who is, like, thinks she's younger than she is and decides he's going to rape and murder her.
1: But one of the rules of the conference is you cannot hunt at the conference.
0: Yeah, or specifically, in the words of Mr. Nimrod, we don't shit where we eat.
1: Right. So, but... In between the sort of banality of this conference where they're talking and they're acting almost like middle managers who have a job, which mm-hmm. their job is being serial killers, there's cuts almost of the different motives and the different styles of these killers. And that's how you sort of get to see um, Funland kind of, he's almost like a, like a wolf in his mind. And yeah, and he-, he
0: wears a shirt with a wolf on it. Earlier on, I don't know if it's in this issue or the issue beforehand Gilbert tells uh, Rose an earlier version of the story of Red Riding Hood that's, mm-hmm. you know, much more gruesome and ends with Red Riding Hood getting killed by the wolf. So, yeah, there's this this theme of, like, these guys being, like, predators. The two kind of plot points that run through this issue are Rose, you know, looking around and then attracting the attention of... Not attract, but, you know, getting attacked by Funland. And then... Also you have this thing where the Corinthian is just having fun at this convention and he puts it together that the dude claiming to be the boogeyman who keeps trying to get people to read this magazine called Chaste Magazine right isn't actually the boogeyman he's the editor of this magazine and so him and uh this doctor serial killer and Mr. Nimrod decide to take care of this interloper and they take him they knock him out and take him in the Corinthians car out into like the glades or something and they string him up and take turns murdering him. And that's where we get the Corinthians sort of like philosophy.
1: Yeah. And I think that also he, at one point when they want to put him in the trunk, he says, Oh, you can, I got something in there for later. And that's where you realize where Jed has been the whole time, which is in the Corinthians trunk.
0: Yeah. I want to, I want to pull up the speech the Corinthian gives also can we just like yes the corinthian is a, a a horrible murderer
1: but does he not look a lot like dennis leary in this with this dennis leary?
0: maybe <laughs> he um he's
1: like a young dennis leary from the like 80s i think he looks like
0: i don't know that's not there's definitely somebody that i thought he looked like but it's not maybe sting
1: nah i don't think he's
0: that but he's so he's got like he's got like um hair that's long on top and short on the sides and it's like slick back blonde hair and he wears a tight tank shirt tucked into black pants with a belt and he has these like reflective john lennon sunglasses that he wears because his eyes are mouths with sharp teeth he's um disturbingly hot
1: and he also says i have a thing for eyes
0: Yeah, well, that's his thing. That's what he collects, his eyeballs. He takes people's eyeballs. There's a part where he talks about the feeling of somebody's eyeball popping under the teeth in his eyes. He's uh, awful and evil and grotesque, but he's really fucking cool. He's one of the coolest characters in this. I love the Corinthian.
1: I like how he was RSVPing to the conference, and they didn't show him. They just showed his hand and him talking on the phone and he's at a desk sort of like where he's RSVPing and all you see is these human eyeballs rolling around. And then he's kind of like very cavalier and he says to the people that he murdered, see you guys later, and then he just gets in his car and just drives away.
0: Yeah, there's he's... a part where he gets accosted by two um, street toughs. Right. Who initially try to present like they're they're like prostitutes and then they they try to attack him and mug him. And at one point, he bites two of that dude's fingers off with his eyes. And that's all told in first person. So we don't really get a view of what he looks like with his glasses off until much later on in the story.
1: One of my favorite panels from this is a panel of Morpheus where he's sitting in the audience listening to this keynote speech that the Corinthian is making. And he sort of has this very sort of like this posture that says that he's bored and he's annoyed and he's, he doesn't <laughs> not want to be at this conference, which I think is a very funny sort of like image.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. So here, here's the speech that, here's the speech that Kennedy gives to the fake boogeyman. He says, you came to us, you say you came to us to learn very well. We'll teach you, teach you that it isn't the sex, isn't the power, isn't the cruelty. We are soldiers of darkness, Philip gladiators, warriors, and gods. And we'll teach you, the good doctor likes to skin people alive. Nimrod is a hunter. He can bone, joint, and gut any animal. For myself, I have a penchant for eyes. And you know what we're going to do now, Philip? We're going to take turns. But he has this, like... He's very much like a Hannibal character. He has this, like, philosophy about, like... How, the, you know, these serial killers are special. And they're, like, realer than the rest of humanity. And they serve this, like, elemental darkness... And how other people that aren't serial killers are, like, cowards. And in a way, he's kind—he's like Bruton Glob to a certain extent. Where he's, like, set up this kingdom that he is a king of. And it is this kingdom of killers. And when Morpheus, like, has his final conversation with him, he sort of takes that down. And is like, no, you're just, like, a coward and a sadist. And none of this is, like, important or good what you've been doing. You're just cruel.
1: I always think that the Corinthian is almost, well, he's like a thrill killer, but he's almost like a David Lynch character. Like he's that sort of comment on like America and our like complacency and how, you know, things like evil like this can grow without us even caring or we're so jaded about things like this that we don't really even pay attention to it.
0: Yeah, he would not be out of place in, like, Lost Highway. And there's really—he's he's also pretty similar to Bob from Twin Peaks. Or, like, honestly, um, in Twin Peaks, the revival, Mr. C reminded me a lot of the Corinthian. He's a little less wordy than the Corinthian. The Corinthian is, like, very pompous.
1: I like at the part where the Corinthian is giving his speech— and and it's kind of like a conference and somebody's droning on and they're trying to be motivational, but the crowd is tired and the conference has been going on too long. And then Morpheus is almost like those people that like stand up in the conference and say, I have a question. And it's actually more of a comment or I have a question. It's actually three questions in one. And he starts interacting with the Corinthian and he starts berating him for being like, a letdown to him because he's had this idea that as a dream creature, he had these expectations of the Corinthian and even as spectacular a killer as the Corinthian is, he's still a disappointment to Morpheus.
0: Well, yeah. So the, the the Corinthian is as his keynote speech is giving a, a bigger, more dramatic version of the speech he gives to the boogeyman. And he says, we are gladiators and we are soldiers of fortune and we are swashbucklers and heroes and Kings of the night. We are the living and that's a triumph, our triumph and our glory. And then (laughs) Dream just says, you disappoint me, Corinthian, from the audience and gets up and starts berating him.
1: (laughs) But then he also, so at that point, he enrages the Corinthian. He rips off his glasses and there's this fight. And then Morpheus sort of just unhinges and just lets it go at the Corinthian and pretty much just destroys him to like dust and picks up his skull and his
0: like little, little tiny skull. It's also interesting because he's kind of, in this speech, I think you could read Morpheus' speech to the Corinthian as being like a takedown of slasher movies. Like, it's clear that Neil Gaiman has this preference for this older, more gothic style of horror, which he explores a lot in Preludes and Nocturnes. And what he says to the Corinthian is, what Dream says to the Corinthian is, Uh, You were my masterpiece, or so I thought. A nightmare created to be the darkness and the fear of darkness in every human heart. A black mirror made to reflect everything about itself that humanity will not confront. But look at you. Forty years walking the earth, honing yourself, infecting others with your joy of death. And what have you given them? What have you wrought, Corinthian? Nothing. Just Just something else for people to be scared of, that's all. You told them there are bad people out there, and they've known that all along.
1: I think this is my favorite line, which is related to that, is when he says, the next time I make you, you shall not be so flawed and petty, little dream. But I think also the way he treats the Corinthian is very similar to the way that he treats Lita Hall. Yeah. So he's kind of like admonishing them for being themselves.
0: I guess. But it's also they both end up later on in the series serving a purpose for him. So, I wonder if this is also intentional, that he's putting on a show for the Corinthian so that later on he will do what he wants him to do.
1: So, I don't think we're very clear at this point, but the how that Morpheus ends up at the conference is that when Rose is being attacked, she calls his name and he shows up.
0: Yeah, she's being attacked by Funland in her hotel room and she calls out to Morpheus who shows up and he puts Funland in a dream and he treats funland a lot like how he treats dr d right where he, i think there's this thing where morpheus has a certain level of like mercy for the most awful people if they're if they're awful not because of like an act of choice on their part funland and dr d are both sick and they're driven by impulses and compulsions they can't control brute and glob and the corinthian all could not do this, but they choose to because they're shitty people. And so they don't get his mercy. He just, you know, unmakes them or banishes them to darkness.
1: So at the end of the issue, Fiddler finds Jed and he's... I don't know if he's in a coma or he's in a dream state. And he gives Jed to Rose.
0: It's, it's Gilbert. Yeah, he, he finds Jed in the Corinthians trunk and he returns him to Russ. I think he's just in a mundane coma because he's he was clearly like awake at some point because Gilbert heard him sobbing and he's making noises from the trunk. He's just been like, you know, beaten and deprived of food and water and trapped in the trunk of a car for several days. So of course he would see suffer some ill effects from that.
1: I also think it's important to mention that the title, The Collectors, I I believe is a reference to the novel John Fowles' novel his 1963 novel about the it's set it's take place in England and it's about a bureaucratic clerk who the first part of the novel is he's obsessed with butterflies and the second part which is told from the point of view of his victim it turns out that he is like a predator and a potential killer and I think that's a reference to I think this the the collectors is a reference to that book.
0: You no, know, it definitely is because they bring that book up in right. this issue. One of the things I think the boogeyman talks about it with Funland. Maybe he he brings up the collector and then he tells people to read his magazine. Yeah, that um that book's real disturbing. I've never actually read it, but apparently it was in real life an inspiration to at least one serial killer. That being the toy box killer, who's one of the most disturbing ones I've ever read about. Right,
1: right, and I think I I definitely think that that was in Neil Gaiman's mind when he wrote this one.
0: Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, that that that's an interesting issue. I mean, it's it's violent, it's kind of graphic, it's very provocative, and like you said, trigger warnings all over the place. But I think it fits thematically right in the middle of the stories. Which is what we talked about last time, and I think you even said that if you think that You're not going to be made uncomfortable by what goes on in the Sandman. Then you're looking at the wrong.
0: I think this is probably the height of it. I don't think it gets more disturbing than this after this. I mean, honestly, I think 24 hours is a more disturbing issue than anything that actually happens in.
1: I think this is a counterpoint to that. I think it's, it's kind of the same thing. Like, you know, the Corinthian is almost... Like John Dee, he's creating this chaos, this horror. and Because, I mean, he's the dream creature that's sort of, in some way, the inspiration for all of these killers. I think it's also important to note that when Gilbert gives Rose that piece of paper with Morpheus's name on it, where it's almost like a Beetlejuice thing, where she has to say it, and yeah. then he realizes that he has now alerted morpheus to him and that's how we start to figure out that gilbert is the fourth and final dream creature
0: yeah i mean i think the first hint is when he recognizes the corinthian but yeah i mean gilbert is like gilbert's great he's genuinely one of my favorite characters in the series and yeah he's like heroic he he makes a knowing sacrifice when he gives that paper to rose because he knows if dream shows up then he'll have to give up his humanity and go back to the dreaming. Yeah. All right. Do you want to move on to the next, to the next yeah. issue?
1: So the next part takes place a little bit after the convention and Jeb is in the hospital. Jed is in the hospital and Rose goes back to the boarding house and she lets – Hal asks how things are going and she sort of gives him an update about how her brother is doing and she says, you know, she's tired and she wants to go to sleep And I think this is when the plot moves into more about Rose and the Vortex and Rose's family history, especially dealing with the dream world and with Morpheus
0: and the endless. Well, so the bulk of this issue is exploring the dreams of each of the residents. Gilbert's not there because he's gone to sit by Jed's bedside and wait for Morpheus. Uh, but we see Hal's dream and he's dreaming of, we see, a, we see like three different versions of Hal's dream because his, the first time he's dreaming, he's visited by all of these um, glamorous women from popular culture who are going to share some kind of secret with him that he doesn't learn until he wakes up. And then his next dream is Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz continually peeling off her face and she, she's like, the The Wicked Witch, and she's a man, and she's all these different people. And then the last time we see his dream, he's dreaming about a former lover who think, left him, who I think is maybe supposed to be one of the killers.
1: Maybe. I, or he's
0: drawn very similarly to the connoisseur.
1: I thought a lot about Hal, and I, I know he's supposed to be a transvestite performer. In I mean,
0: he's thing. a drag queen.
1: Right. But I feel like maybe there's a little bit... More to him that maybe he's, you know, transgender and he's trying to come to grips with this. And I think the first part of the dream where he has this sort of he dreams about this like idealized beautiful woman, you know, these famous actresses who are known for their beauty and for their femininity, and then later on he dreams of you know another famous female who's known for her femininity, uh, Dorothy and you know, they're pulling off their faces and they're revealing their true nature. So I think that Hal's a little bit more complex than he's, like, originally you think he's sort of like, you know, he's a performer and he has a show and there's really not that much going on. But I think as Rose goes into the dreams of the people who live in the house, you kind of get a better understanding of their psyches. And I think it's a really, like, sort of heartfelt and, like, sensitive issue that sort of shows, like, these people and their, like, hopes and fears and h- their defense mechanisms and how they deal with the world. I think it's especially, it was very sad and it was very emotional, especially the dreams of, like, Zelda and Chantel, you know, where she dreams about her childhood and, like, her kind of being different and her kind of obsession with, the, like, macabre and how, you know, her family didn't you know support her and i think it's sort of it's kind of like 24 hours where it's showing people yeah yeah
0: so that's what i say this this is a reflection of 24 hours and the the counterpoint to dr d is not i don't think it's the corinthian at all i think it's rose it's rose 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 is the reflection of dr d yeah so this it's essentially the inverse of 24 hours where 24 hours was about a group of people being stuck a group of complicated people being stuck in one place and having elements of them stripped away until they lose their humanity this is about a bunch of people who are revealed to be more complex and we get more and more insight into them and just how human they are and 24 hours was about like forcing people together and then alienating them from each other this is about trying to establish a connection between people and sort of overstepping In both ways, like, Dr. D oversteps his bounds with the people maliciously and abuses them. Rose oversteps her boundaries from a place of, you know, concern and altruism, and she's trying to do the right thing. She just doesn't fully understand the situation and what she's doing. But yeah, I was going to say, I think the thing with Hal is, there's no definitive statement is made, but it's clear that he has struggles with concepts of, like, Identity and acceptance and, like, his relationship to his masculinity and his femininity and what that means for who he is as a person. I don't, like, I don't know if this is supposed to be us being like, oh, Hal's an egg and he doesn't realize that he's, that, you know, he would be more comfortable identifying as a woman or not. But it's definitely clear that, like, as it's presented earlier, there's a clear distinction between Hal And his performing identity of Miss Dolly. And his dreams reveal that that's actually much more. The boundaries are softer. And it's a much more complicated situation. And that's how it is for everyone. Barbie and Ken are portrayed as being essentially one unit in the waking world. Whereas in the dreams, they clearly have very different concerns. Ken has lots of anxieties about sex and money and power. And his dreams are these incomprehensible techno nightmares with people with distorted faces and like everyone talks in the text from like a calculator or a cash cash register whereas barbie's dreams which become very important later on in the series in a game of you are these sort of escapist like fantasy stories where she's clearly like you know looking for something ken is tortured by the reality he lives in and barbie is, like, rejecting it, at least in her dreams, and we see that they're, you know, very different people. The same thing with Zelda and Chantel, who are, again, sort of presented as, like, a unit, and their dreams are very different. Uh Chantel's dreams are all about, like, language. She's in love with a sentence, and, like, she's clearly... I don't really understand her dreams all that much. Zelda's are much more straightforward. They're clearly about, like, her childhood and feeling alienated and disconnected, and reveling in the connection that she feels to Chantel.
1: I think I think you're right. I think all of the residents of the boarding house in some way are dealing with the sort of complex nature of identity. Yeah. And I think that Zelda and Chantel, one is more comfortable and accepting of who she is, and that's the one who's in love with the sentences. And the other one is dealing with this sort of complicated residue of a difficult childhood.
0: Yeah, I think the difference is Chantal knows who she is, but not what she wants. And Zelda knows what she wants, which is Chantel, but doesn't know who she is. Which is why she like is comfortable with this the way that they present themselves in the daytime, where they both have sort of relinquished their individual identities to become this collective identity of the spider women. Yeah. Whereas it's like... And all that Spider-Woman stuff is present in Zelda's dreams, which are these, like, weird gothic cartoons, essentially. Whereas in Chantel's dreams, she's not dressed like that at all. They're all bright and, like, happening in, like, a white void, essentially.
1: And I think just to get back to Barbie, I think her dreams, which are depicted as the sort of high fantasy... it's. It's interesting that she's referred to in her own dreams as Barbara, so she kind of takes back her identity and separates herself from Ken. And I really like—I like Martin Tenbones. Yeah, Martin Tenbones is great. I yeah, and I think like I—I I think he is great. But I think Ken is almost like this sort of personification of like this '80s businessman where greed is good and it's almost like American psycho where he's sort of driven to be like this kind of like stockbroker and he's obsessed with technology and money and the stock market and then on the flip side Barbie has this sort of fantasy world where it's almost like a feminist high fantasy story where she's the hero and she's the person that saves other people And I kind of felt like that was like an interesting sort of like reflection of the culture of the time where, you know, it was supposed to be like, we're all supposed to be really successful business people. And Barbie was kind of like rejecting that because she wants to be a princess and she wants to, I don't know what Martin is. Is he, he's a cat. He's a cat creature. He's like a
0: big, (laughs) he's like a big fluffy cat that kind of looks like an old man. Um, Yeah, and she's struggling against some force called the cuckoo, which we will later learn what that is when Barbie comes back, Um, or Barbara.
1: But she ends up just, at the end of the story, she ends up leaving Ken because she realizes that their, their paths are no longer aligned. and I guess this dream has awakened in her consciousness, the fact that she doesn't want to be a yuppie or whatever she is with Ken.
0: Yeah, I think Ken and Barbie are kind of like a second shot at exploring the same sort of the same ideas that we see with the yuppie couple in the diner, but they're not awful people the way that the people in the diner are. But Ken is definitely the least developed of all of the people whose dreams we see because his dreams are the most abstract and it's clear that it's just something about money and power and sex and the mixed up muddled up relationship between those three things.
1: But I think what happens is when Rose starts dreaming and the other people in the house are dreaming, and there's this sort of mix up. This is where the vortex starts. And this is when Morphine says, Okay, enough of this. And he goes and he snatches Rose out of the waking world and takes her to the dream world.
0: Yeah, so the boundaries between all the dreams become softer for Rose. And she comes to this understanding, or at least she comes to this conclusion. That from how she sees it, what these people all need is like connection to each other and to support each other and to come to some sort of understanding. And so she dissolves the barriers between their dreams and creates this chaotic shared dream realm. And this is our first glimpse into what the Vortex does, which is like on a grander scale, the Vortex does this to everyone. And it essentially destroys the boundaries between the individual.
1: But do you think that Rose? Bruce- is conscious that she's doing this, I kind of got the impression that she didn't know... She was herself dreaming and thought that what she was doing was part of the dreaming.
0: I don't think she fully understands that what she's what is happening is actually happening, but she definitely makes the decision to start connecting all the people in the house. Like, I I think she makes an... This is when she does have agency, and her active choice is to try and connect everyone, and it's a noble endeavor. It just turns out to be, you know misguided if people are going to connect they got to connect when they're awake
1: so then the issue ends with matthew and gilbert having a conversation and he cues him into the fact matthew cues him into the fact that rose is impacting the dream world and morpheus wants to kill her yeah and then i guess gilbert realizes that this has to be done to protect the dream world
0: but he's still going to try and stop it because right. he's a good dude.
1: Well, he has a he yes, his imperative is to be heroic. Yeah. So
0: so he goes back, willingly goes back to the dreaming with Matthew to try and intervene between Dream and Rose to try and save Rose. And that's the end of the issue. And the next issue picks up with Rose being like, "You're going to kill me?"
1: I So this is part 7 and it's called Lost Hearts, which yeah. is, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I like this um, in the beginning of the first panel when Morpheus sort of has this long, you know, he's bare chest and he has this long flowing robe. Yeah. And she also has a flowing robe, but hers is white and his is black. And they have this sort of intellectual showdown in the dream world.
0: Yeah, and this is where he explains to her the consequences of the Vortex and what has happened before. When a vortex was allowed to develop unchecked and, you know, that he has to kill her. Gilbert shows up to intervene and I don't know if it's in this issue or the previous one where we find out that he, unlike the other dreams we've met, he was not like a dream entity. He was a place. He was Fiddler's Green, this sort of idealized, you know, Big Rock Candy Mountain sort of like perfect dream world that we're all trying to get to or that we all retreat to when we're you know, need a place of, like, comfort and serenity.
1: I think this one, especially this panel on the second page where Rose takes this posture, she has this sort of um, casual posture, and she's kind of... Where you were saying that Rose sort of is almost like a victim to Morpheus, and she... I think she, in the dream world, stands up to him and is almost like his equal. Yeah. Like, she takes this sort of, like, masculine pose and she starts to disagree with Morpheus and she starts to challenge him. So I don't think she's, um, she's not as, she's not a victim. And I think that she has realized her power and her role and her importance.
0: Sure. So I think
1: like, even like, I mean, she might've been, I don't think Morpheus, he's not a predator to Rose. No. And I think that's a distinction. She has been chronically plagued by predators and people trying to hurt her. And even though Morpheus is trying to kill her, their exchange is almost more of an equal conversation. Yeah. So she really starts to question him and she really starts to give him almost as much as a hard time as he's giving her. So it's kind of like... They're having this complicated conversation, but Rose is, is an equal and she's just as present in the conversation as Morpheus is.
0: Yeah. But again, like I said, this is sort of a reflection of the last issue of that story with Dr. D. Again, we're back in this dream world with Morpheus and a human figure and they're having this conflict, but here it's almost a purely verbal one. And it's another person who is, who's meddled in his domain intentionally or otherwise and whereas john d he he gives mercy to and decides not to kill even though he could he feels he has to kill rose and he's confronted with this situation where from his perspective he he cannot uh extend mercy because if he did it would you know destroy the dream realm and then ultimately uh gilbert shows back up he goes back to being fiddler's green uh and then rose uh, unity dies and her soul ends up in the dream realm and she reveals that she was originally meant to be the vortex she has rose sort of symbolically through the passing of another one of these glass hearts pass the powers of the vortex on to her and then dream kills rose or dream kills unity
1: i think it's interesting that at the point where you become aware of Fiddler Green and Unity shows up, the action moves to Fiddler's Green.
0: I thought the idea was that it was sort of always there, but because he wasn't around, it couldn't be Fiddler's Green. So it was just this wasteland.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of—I kind of felt like he was showing Rose because she was very upset that he was going to be gone. But yeah. then he was kind. Con- she was. Sh- he was showing her that, like, he's not gone. He's. Now just a where instead of a who.
0: Yeah, and I think this thematically sets up stuff that's important for the ending about like change and how that's different from just a full-on death. You know, the facet is not the gem. Gilbert and Fiddler's Green are both the same thing even though they're different things.
1: Yeah, and I think when she removes her heart and then gives it to Unity... The heart is the same kind of sigil that is desire sigil, but it's a different color. Yeah. It's it's kind of it's like a very complicated story about like I mean, she didn't know her grandmother Mm -hmm. and she didn't know her family history and then all of a sudden she's like in the middle of this complicated story where she has to interact with Morpheus and with her grandmother and then come to grips with the fact that like she has the power to disrupt the hu- the waking and the dream world. It's like... I guess that's why at the very end of it she sort of checks out for a long time. And she's kind of like, I can't deal with this anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean we get to see what happens when an endless meddles in the coming... In mortal lives. And it sucks. And it hurts everybody. And it creates these complicated, tragic stories that don't really have an easy out. And somebody has to die to fix it and like it's this is sort of like a broader version of the same kind of story we see in tales on the sand where it's like the endless and the humans interact in this way and a fucking city gets destroyed and a woman gets condemned to hell and this time you know gilbert has to stop being a person and unity dies and rose is like scarred for a little while and retreats into her room
1: but i think unity's life was pretty much put on pause The time that Morpheus was captured, she was supposed to be the vortex. Mm -hmm. So her her cycle would have been ended earlier if she had not slept all of those years. And I think that like it turns out that sort of you realize desire has also been meddling in the family history of the Walkers, and Unity's child is almost a direct is a direct result of the meddling of desire into the human world
0: yeah so the reveal at the end after all this happens morpheus goes to confront desire and we find out that unity's uh, that miranda's husband is desire so desire is rose's grandmother uh grandfather i guess and that part of their plan was for some reason to try and trick ...dream into killing someone he's related to. Yeah. Which is apparently a very bad thing that they're not supposed to do.
1: I think it also shows that, like, desire and death... Well, I mean, Morpheus makes a speech about how they are both wrong... ...in that they... The role of the Endless is not to meddle in humans' business. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, the opposite should happen... ...where the human should meddle in the Endless business... And kind of corrects them to this sort of um kind of like almost like like a greek god where they you know mess with the humans and they take pleasure and enjoyment from like these machinations and kind of says like we're their toys which is kind of hard to understand because if the people are not aware that the endless exists how can they it's kind of like a cycle like a philosophical but it, debate he,
0: he one of the things dream says is that they we are aware that they exist we just don't call them the endless there are stories about the sandman. we're aware of the concepts of dream desire death destiny destruction delirium like the, we know all those things exist we're just maybe not aware that there are like pale people in goth outfits walking around being those things but they we still know about them it's also a very populist take where he's like, we serve at the behest of the humans, not the other way around, which, you know.
1: But I think it was also interesting. It's also revealed that Rose's friend was one of the people who died in the diner. Yeah. And so she was the character who had broken up with her girlfriend. And she was one of the characters that was that D had dealt with in that episode, which I think affected her before she even had any interaction with the dream world. Yeah, yeah. But I liked it. I mean it kind of felt like, you know, at the end where she like had dealt processed what had happened and she just goes on with her life and you see that, you know, Jed is better and he's fine and her mother is happy and the family is back together. So it's almost like a happy ending, almost like a fairy tale.
0: Uh yeah, I guess. I mean Dream does try to give her a happy ending. He says that he'll he'll return her brother from the shores of Dream or whatever and wake him up from his coma and she gets all this money from the uh from Unity's estate.
1: But I think he like Morpheus also has a really intense um conversation with desire and at the end where he like is almost like threatening her for meddling in his life, I think that he's also very harsh, and he doesn't have any compassion or temper his anger at all when he's dealing with with her at the end of the story well,
0: I mean desire's another person who chose to do bad things, even though they didn't need to, and meddled in people's lives and was like abusive by you know completely by their own choice, with full agency so of course you know, they get a stern talking to from their brother. But he's not, he can't, he he can't kill Desire because, like, if anything, that's exactly what Desire was trying to get him to do.
1: But why were they meddling? Why were they trying to get him to kill Rose when she's part, she's part endless at this point?
0: I mean, I think, I don't know if this is explained later, but I think the idea is just that, like, Desire is petty and mean and was trying to do a, play a, a weird, long, mean prank on their brother, which involved murder. I mean, Desire's kind of like a Loki figure. They're a trickster god. They're the troublemaker in the pantheon.
1: Okay, that makes sense. I think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So do you have anything else to add? I mean, it was a very chock-a-block episode filled with a lot of...
0: Yeah, this was a, it's a very long and... Not long. I mean, it's not that long. It's not any longer than the previous volume. But I think it's more dense because it's one long story and rather than like the sort of more contained single issue stories building up to a climax the way that Preludes and Nocturnes is. Uh, Oh, I guess we could talk about the art. We didn't really touch on that too much. So most of Preludes and Nocturnes was drawn by Sam Keith, except for like the last two issues, which are drawn by Mike Dringenberg, who does the bulk of the art on this uh, volume. And I I don't like it as much as I like Sam Keith, but I think he still does a really good job. His style is a little more, it's less cartoony. It's a little more realistic. He clearly uses a lot of photo reference to the point where some sort of background and architectural elements and cars are clearly just sort of traced from photos. There's a couple moments of deliberate photo collage in the dreams and uh, in a little bit of when we see Desire's Realm, which I think is pretty cool. He doesn't do a lot with the playing with the proportions and shape of the panels, but he does a lot of interesting stuff playing with the layout of the pages. Because we didn't really touch on it too much, but early on, there's a sequence where Lucian, the librarian, is doing like a census of dreaming. And when we go into the dream world, the page flips sideways. And then all of that section, excuse me, all of that section in the dreaming is told horizontally rather rather than vertically and then it flips back vertically when we enter back into the real world to check in with uh miranda and rose and unity who are also again another reflection of the uh, triple goddess which we didn't really touch on
1: right i did not make that connection until just this minute (laughs) yeah because there's three women in the same family
0: yeah and it's the mother the maiden and the crown but the problem with with them is that the crone is also the maiden because, as she says she went to sleep when she was seventeen she's she's in a way even younger than Rose, and he I think he um he does a lot with like shadow in a way that's interesting- i mean also shout out to Malcolm Jones, the Third the Inker, but there's a lot of like deep dark shadows and shadows moving onto and over people's faces in a way that's really cool and moody. It's definitely not the same as. Sam Keith's art, but it still feels like the same series, in a way that I think is is really nice.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot more going on
0: with the like the flipping that also happens when the vortex thing happens. The page and the panels sort of flip into different uh, configurations. Like it's like there's like a big splash page, and there's panels at the corners, but they're all. Flipped at different angles. Did you? Did you find this to be any harder to follow than the first volume? I Just didn't,
1: all? but I felt like I was more. I felt more comfortable with it because I had read the first collection, and I kind of had that mindset of how to read it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's. I also really liked the fact that this sort of complicated, um, non-traditional panel layout was kind of. It helped the story along. And I know the one point where I talked about Rose's shared dreams with the people in the boarding house and that image, the background is the house and then the panels are constructed of the different rooms, of the different dreamers, and it's set within the house.
0: Yeah, it's like a cross section of the house, but each room is a panel depicting an image from the dream of one of the residents of the house. Yeah, no, it's really cool. Was there anything else that you wanted to say about it? Not necessarily about the art, but about the, the, the whole thing?
1: I think this is when the imagery and the iconography of the series starts to really solidify. You start to realize the importance of the sigils, of the endless... And the motifs that they carry with them, like desires, hearts, which you see in a lot of different ways. And you get a nod towards the ring with the hook on it. And then you realize that, like, even though it's one of the tools of the Sandman, his sigil is actually his helm, which you start to see in different manifestations. And at the one point in Tales of the Sand, even though... Morpheus is not in his usual construct of what he looks like as an Endless. There are still, his symbology is still on this character. You see a sort of a red heart, a red color around his heart area. And his um, robe that he's wearing has the flames reflected. So you start to realize that when you see these symbols in the actual drawing of the comic, then you know it's sort of a nod to which Endless that you're going to be seeing and having more interaction with which kind of makes me more excited to see destiny because you've only sort of alluded to him like he's Mm -hmm. in the preface where neil gaiman talks about what happened in the first collection and there's a sort of a nod to like his book and i kind of he's almost like as a librarian he's almost kind of like the most librarian-ish kind of character in the story which i'm really excited to see later on when he shows up
0: yeah yeah I do like the the drawing of uh, Morpheus with the flames on his robes. I do like his Guy Fieri robes. They're very cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I guess you're right. This is where a lot of the iconography... Because we establish that all of the Endless have a symbol. We get the first hint that Destruction is missing because there is a missing symbol in Desire's gallery. This is also where, like I said, a lot of the stuff for the ending gets set up. We hear the first mention of the Kindly Ones who are important later... Lita and her unborn son are very important later on, and then there's lots of other stuff that will be important further on in the series that is foreshadowed or set up in this. Like Barbie, Rose comes, and also Rose comes back, and Shakespeare. We find out about the specifics of dreams deal with Shakespeare later on. I think Hobgadlin comes back once or twice too. So, like, yeah, this is yeah, this is this is where it's really like. I think in my mind, Sandman really becomes Sandman at the sound of her wings, and now it's fully Sandman in this volume.
1: Oh, yeah, I think so. Okay. So, let's talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing for the next episode. Do you have your short story chosen?
0: Yes. I am picking a story called Sunbleached by Nathan Ballingrud. I think is how you say this dude's name. It's a... was published by Nightmare Magazine. It's available on their site. I think there's also an audio version on there if you want to listen to it. It's a vampire story. Ooh.
1: So my choice is... I've been reading a lot of stories inspired by fairy tales. So my choice is a reflection of that. Um, I picked... It's called Oli Luke Owi, The Dream God by Hans Christian Andersen. Oh, okay. And it's... Sort of the precursor to the Wee Willie Winkie story, which I think is interesting. The version that I picked is from the Project Gutenberg version of Hans Christian Andersen's um, fairy tales. Okay, so it's in the public domain, and I also thought that this was interesting because it almost has like almost like a Sandman like tie-in because it's about dreaming and about gods and about um, humans' interactions with higher beings. So I think it'll be fun. It's kind of old fashioned, which I think is also fun because it's you know it's it's like the original version of the fairy tales which have been sort of transmutated after a long history of being retold and you know changed by pop culture so
0: Yeah, and as we find out from Dream in men of good fortune all stories eventually return to the oldest version
1: yeah so i think it'll be fun so if you want to read along with us this one is available in project gutenberg and we're going to be i specifically wanted this one because i wanted the original version of anderson's um, fairy tales they're kind of like a couple of years ago we read the grim fairy tales mm-hmm. and they're kind of like they're not as innocent and childlike as we think of fairy tales today. So well, you know, they're yeah. like they're cautionary tales and they're often violent and they're often kind of sadistic. So they're not as like sanitized as like the Disney versions that we're used to today. So I think it'll be a really interesting story. And I also want to talk a little bit next time about this trend of like fairy tale and fairy tale characters in modern fiction so i think this will be a good tie in
0: yeah sure sounds good spoiler alert stay tuned bye sweet dreams